Miss the show? No problems on point and on our podcast. Why an American doctor is not saying not to get vaccinated, but he doesn't think children should be getting their second dose until we've got more research in. So we'll talk to him. We will have a discussion about why tearing down statues is not the answer to bringing us together. Those are the words of one Indigenous leader who survived the residential school system. And Sam Cooper will give us the intel on just why it is that the Canadian government does not want us to see the documents into that Winnipeg lab leak. Stay with us for that. Why is the CDC against the mixing of mRNA vaccines? It is, I guess, the main reason being that they just don't have enough data about side effects of mixing. And then there are concerns about increased reports of something called myocarditis. This is uh, an inflammation of the heart that's been found in younger people. This has been studied by Israel. It's been caught in uh, the United States. But there have been cases. And it's interesting because we've had a lot of concern over blood clots in AstraZeneca, so much so that uh, you know countries were pulling it off the shelves and we're not even giving it anymore. Yet there has not s- seemingly been the same concern for those who are developing these heart complications after getting vaccinated. And so, you know, if we're going to push kids to get vaccinated, do we have the proper data to know if we're doing the right thing? The WHO um, has warned, and for whatever reason, this has flown under the radar. They're warning young kids should not be vaccinated because of, quote, a lack of data. But others in healthcare are also raising concerns. Dr. Marty Meckery is a professor of John Hopkins School of Medicine and Bloomberg School of Public Health, editor of MedPage, author of the New York Times bestseller, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How We Fix It. Good to have you, doctor. Thanks for having me, Alex. All right. I've got a bunch of things that I want to talk to you. Um, first, before I head into vaccines in younger people, I do want to ask you about why Canada and the United States, which you would think have should have pretty similar health uh, guidelines. I mean, other than politics, Canada, as you probably well know, has spread out shots from 21 days to 16 weeks, and now they're saying, you know, it's okay to mix mRNA vaccines uh, with other mRNA vaccines. They're saying you could mix mRNA vaccines with the AstraZeneca vaccines. The CDC says no no mixing. That That's not okay. So what are they seeing differently than we are? Well, look, some of these agencies are behind the times and other agencies are still writing on stone tablets like it's the biblical times. You can mix and match vaccines. There's no issue with that as long as you do it within certain dosing schedules and parameters. And we've known for a long time that the more you separate two vaccine doses with time, the more effective the vaccine. So getting that second dose of three months actually gives you better immune protection long term than if you separate it by two or three weeks. Okay, and then what about concerns about mixing of mRNA vaccines? Why is it okay to do it here, um, but, you know, it's not so good in the United States? In fact, they don't, they don't let it happen unless it's a dire circumstance. Well, the CDC is way behind the times, and they're very slow, and we've seen that time and time again. I mean, they were, they were just telling kids 
that they have to wear masks outside when they're still distancing. I mean, this is stuff that's inconsistent with all the science. This is discretionary stuff. Um, it, it's behind the time. So I've lost a lot of confidence in the CDC, but I still have a lot of confidence in the medical profession. And if you think about the science of medicine, what you're getting with a vaccine are the building blocks of the spike protein. So your body is taking those building blocks, constructing a spike protein. Your immune system recognizes it and creates the antibodies. So that's why it doesn't matter how you construct the spike protein, you're still getting an immune response. So we know that the main vaccines are doing that effectively. And so if you construct the spike protein with the Pfizer vaccine and then a couple months later get the Moderna vaccine, you're still constructing another, another spike protein to elicit that strong immune response. And what about AstraZeneca with an mRNA? Yeah, same thing. So the AstraZeneca vaccine is giving you the building blocks of a spike protein that your body is also recognizing. It's just delivering it through a different mechanism. It's delivering it through a bedine virus. All right. I want to be clear because, I mean, there is a lot of, uh, you know, misinformation out there. And as soon as you question vaccines, then, you know, you get adopted by the anti-vaxxer crowd. I am not an anti-vaxxer. I'm waiting for my second dose now. And I know that you're not an anti-vaxxer. But you have been vocal in concerns about vaccination when it comes to kids um, because you say there's not enough compelling data to say that this has to be done now. Well, that's right. Kids should not get a second vaccine dose. And I'm defining kids as people up to age 30. Now, unless there's a special circumstance like the kid is very high risk or is immunosuppressed or had an organ transplant, everyday healthy kids should not be getting the second dose of any of the two-dose vaccine regimens, period. That's because the data are coming in right now, and as the health agencies put that data together, they're not liking what they're seeing. Now, the CDC mm-hmm. is dragging its feet in a way that's embarrassing. It's, an, it's, it's a disgrace. They punted it. They kicked their emergency meeting of their experts down the road by a week because they declared last Friday a federal holiday the day before. And so it's mm-hmm. a disgrace what's happening. Please don't listen to the CDC on this topic. The WHO has said, don't even vaccinate people under age 18. I have a different point of view. I say give one dose because the complications we're all concerned about are clustered around the second dose. The deaths that we've seen, and there's been a couple that appear to be from the vaccine, are clearly clustered around that second dose and and kids otherwise totally healthy. Now, kids, healthy kids don't just die. Okay, it's not like adults where you have a background rate of blood clots or strokes and you have to figure out, is this just spontaneous or is it associated with the vaccine? 19-year-old healthy kids don't just die all of a sudden, like Simeon Scott, who had a heart transplant because she went into heart failure from heart inflammation. And there's another case that was reported this morning I just posted on Twitter. So one dose for people under 30. And by the way, there was a study from Israel, from Tel Aviv University, that just came out that showed that one dose in kids is 100% effective. So we are giving too much vaccine with that second dose to uh, the poor immune system of these healthy kids. 
This will be a concern to a lot of parents. I mean, certainly up here, the message is get your kids vaccinated as soon as possible uh, to 12. We're not doing kids yet under 12. Um, and so there are a lot of kids uh, that have already gotten two doses. I'm st- I'm way older than that. I'm still waiting. My 80-year-old mother hasn't yet got her second dose. But we've got a lot of younger kids who are now fully vaccinated. Um, but but they're going to be concerned about hearing of these reports. And the concern, and, and I'm not sure why it doesn't get as widely reported as, let's say the blood clot issue with AstraZeneca, but there have been cases, Israel did a study on it, of this heart enlargement, um, and it's something that you referred to in this child that died in the United States, where you get these young males who get this heart inflammation. It might not kill them, but it is it is an issue that's appearing more and more. That's right. It's called pericarditis and myocarditis. And by the way, if you've had both doses you can be assured that these complications are seen within days of the second dose. So if you're a week or two out, you can rest be um, assured that it's very unlikely that you'd have any complications. And we know in general with vaccine safety that if you do see a complication, it doesn't crop up a year later or down the road. It happens in the first few weeks of a vaccine. It's also rare. I'm describing it as a caution. It's just excessive to get a second dose when you have such strong immune protection from the first. While we're sorting out this complication, hold off on the second. But people should also know we are talking about a rare complication. Just how rare is it? Well, Israel reported 300 cases, roughly, in a country of about 7 million. Now, the U.S. is reporting about 300 cases, but that can't be right because the U.S. is about 50 times more populated than Israel. It's 50 times larger Mm -hmm. country. So there's probably a lot of more cases out there than we we appreciate. Ninety five percent of these cases are mild, but sometimes there have been serious cases. I do find it interesting that you, you when I think of a child, I don't think of 30 as being um, the, the threshold. But nonetheless, I think it's interesting that you say that those 30 and under should only be getting one dose. What do you think then of those under 12? Because I know the studies are already underway as to children, uh, you know, zero to 12 getting vaccines. And I know many parents who are not anti-vaxxer but are quite concerned about putting this into their bodies if, by and large, these children are not getting the virus um, and there is no data to suggest that they're dying of it. Well, first of all, um, Pfizer has already changed the dosing schedule for kids under 12 in their clinical trial. They were planning to use a dose of um, based on uh, weight, Uh, 10, 20, and 30 micrograms, they've reduced that to 3, 10, and 20, probably recognizing that there are these concerns now associated with the dose. So they've already dialed down the dose for their clinical trial in kids under 12. We'll have to see what the data shows. I think there is an effective low dose, lower than what we're using now in kids um, but that, you know, that, that's my opinion. This is my, this, mm-hmm. this is my opinion. Now you're going to have health agencies, airports, governments, colleges, university tell you that I'm, um, I'm the devil, that this is wrong. And you just go ahead and get your set. Your, your, you have to get your two doses. They're going to require it. But my argument is show me the science, show me the data. The data are pretty clear. The immune protection from the first dose is strong. And from the second dose, there are these clusters of complications. And um, finally, you were asking me, what should parents do? Well, we haven't had good data that stratifies the risk of COVID 
And the risk is very different from a totally healthy kid than it is from a kid with a pre-existing condition. And I'm including anything in that, including being overweight. If a kid has a pre-existing condition, those are the kids who have that small risk of death from COVID. The roughly 300 cases so far in the United States out of about 50 million kids. 300 deaths out of 50 million kids. The 300 deaths in from COVID in the United States have almost all been 99 plus percent have been in kids with a pre-existing condition. Mm-hmm. What's that tell you? If your kid is healthy, the risk is infinitesimally small or maybe zero. We think we've identified one child in the United States who's died of COVID. So if the kid is healthy, it, it, the risk is very low. Nonetheless, I appreciate you uh, chatting with me because I am willing to have these conversations and I, am, I, I very much um, appreciate your insight, Doctor. Thanks for having me, Alex. That is Dr. Marty McHarry uh, joining us here tonight, here on Point on Global News Radio. All right, great to have you here with us. It is National Indigenous Peoples Day, and uh, it takes on a new meaning, I think, for a lot of people since the discovery of 215 children found buried in unmarked graves on the grounds of uh, Kamloops Residential School. And, of course, one of the immediate reactions was to remove statues associated with those who played a part in residential schools. Art Edgerton's Ryerson statue was torn down from the campus of Ryerson. And, of course, over the last couple of years, we've seen many Sir John A. MacDonald statues either defaced or removed, as both Prince Edward Island and Kingston's councils have now voted to do. But what happens after then? I mean, what have we learned? Because while the statue may be gone, the history is not. And Chris Sankey is an intergenerational survivor of residential schools, meaning many of his family members were part of this system. And, of course, their abuse and degradation then was passed down to him. And he disagrees with tearing down of statues, pointing out that kind of might feel good in the moment, but it resolves nothing. And I thought it was interesting because you wrote a very personal letter to Sir John A. Macdonald laying out the pain that Canada's first prime minister caused to him and his people while pointing out all the other prime ministers right up until the 90s who could have stopped it and did nothing. And so his argument, don't tear the statues down, but show real action and free this country's indigenous people from under the thumb of government. Chris Sankey is a prominent indigenous business leader, a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, and a former elected counselor for the Lax Kualamas Band. And I hope I got that right, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It, so you it's, wrote it's in, called it's Lakualams. Lakualams. Okay, my my apologies on that. Thank you for correcting me. Um, you know, you wrote in part quote, "I do not know you, John A. Macdonald. I owe you nothing. But I do know is this: tearing down your statue is not going to solve our problems. It only perpetuates divisions. I'd rather see your statue stay so that my kids will know the history. I'd like to see more monuments erected of our indigenous champions who fought for us and memorials to the indigenous people who proved so resilient. That is how we build relationships. That is how we reconcile our differences. If we do not start working together, we will always point fingers at one another. And I thought that was very poignant. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. It's uh, in anything that I do, I always um, I try to make sure that it's the relationship that comes first. You know, we may always have difference of opinion. We may not even like each other. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think it's really important that history is told properly. I, I think that the only way we could get past all this is that we deal with it head on and and be truthful about it. Look, it, what happened to us was wrong. And I, and I think Canadians now have woken up to the realization of just how devastating these schools were. But tearing down Johnny McDonald's statue is not going to solve the current problems that plague our communities today. It's not going to mm-hmm. solve the homelessness. It's not going to solve the addiction. It's not going to solve intergenerational trauma from physical violence, sexual abuse, mental abuse, uh, the state of so many uh, of our people. It, it is so complex that mm-hmm. tearing down one man's statue is not going to solve that. And we hear of news that two BC churches were also burned down. And so there's obviously a lot of anger. But I think, um, and, and correct me where I'm wrong, I mean, Indigenous voices are not monolith. Uh, so where you may have disagreements, um, not everyone has the same opinion and the same experience in our Indigenous people. And so when you get some activist groups, they don't speak for all Indigenous people. No, and nor should they. They should never speak for Indigenous people. And, and it's wrong on so many levels. You know, for such a long time, our people have felt so disconnected from the very country they were born into. And you know, our, our ancestors walked this, this land for so many, many years, thousands of years. And then for these groups to come along to, to uh, connect themselves to a select few within our respected territories and claim that they speak for all of us, that is unequivocally wrong, and they should never be doing that. They talk about reconciliation. They talk about our, hered- our hereditary system like as if they know it, and they don't. Mm-hmm. They don't understand the complexities that come with that system. And it's only the said community that the territories they continue to occupy and cause division, it is only those communities are going to be able to solve their internal differences. It will not be the government. It will not be these NGOs. It will not be industry or any other First Nation outside of that territory where the dispute is risen. It's up to that the one community and the one community only. Before I talk about um, your, you know, your suggestion of, of the Indian Act and cancelling that, let me ask you about this, because, I mean, growing up, I took history. We learned a little bit about the Indigenous people, but certainly residential schools were not part of the curriculum. They still are not part of the curriculum. And I think there is a real curiosity. I think there is a real want to learn about um, what is not a very nice part of our history. In fact, it's very ugly, but I think it's important to learn. And I think there is a real um, openness to learning that. And so there's a teachable moment here. And what best way can we teach it then? I think you you hit it right on the button. I think that it's extremely important that the Canadian education system start to implement the the history of residential schools. It is only then uh, the Canadian system, Canadian populace will get to truly understand. It, it, it would be no different than the way they talked about John A. Macdonald. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest here. Like I, when I was going to school, I never really paid too much attention to who he was, or because, first of all, I, it, it never reson- it never resonated with me. 
Right. And it's human nature to resonate with something that you're connected to. And I was never connected to this individual or, or him being the foundation that laid modern day Canada. Mm-hmm. But in all honesty, my family never talked about residential school. And it wasn't until later in life where they started to talk a bit about it, but it was kind of nonchalant. Mm-hmm. But I tell you, the effects of residential school, which at the time I didn't know, came out adamantly. It just, it protruded what the schools taught. And I, I didn't know at the time, but as I got older, I started to realize this isn't right. Something's really wrong here. And I could only say that now as I speak to you, but at the time it was so debilitating, uh, the mental and physical and sexual violence and the it's just so many things that came with it and just the, the ability for a person to stand there without having to say anything or do anything. And just by, by, by the presence of anger was intimidating. Uh, and you never knew that as a kid, you just thought that was normal and it, there was nothing normal about it. Um, and, and to intimidate and, it wasn't until later on in life where I started to talk more about it after my parents had passed. I started to realize what they have must have gone through attending these schools. You know, my yeah, mother, it's... when she got sent, when she got sent to school, when she came back, um, her brothers, because she was so much younger, her brothers took her to camps, these camps, and hid her away from the school so she wouldn't have to go back. Mm. And so, I, I mean, the history there itself, uh, I, like I said, I, I always tell people I'm not the only person that's gone through this. There's thousands of us today that have had to endure so much of that burden and the teaching from these schools, not even realizing how devastating those teachings were. Because to us, we thought it was normal. Mm-hmm. And then you, what happens is you, you raised a, a, a generation of, of kids that were so traumatized by, by the suffering that the anger and the pain that we've all had to endure that just carried on for so long. Yeah. And, and, and certainly if there's enough survivors that, that survivors could easily go in and tell their stories, almost like Holocaust survivors teach the history to kids so that they have a firsthand account of what we must never um, repeat. Um, but to this day, as you write, you know, there's no accountability then, still no accountability. And you wouldn't tear down the statues, but you would get rid of the Indian Act, which, I mean, in 2021, the fact that it's still even named that shows you how wrongheaded we are. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, you know, I, when I look back in history and I think about how we, you know, the term Indian, everyone knows this now. It's, I mean, Columbus thought he was in India. I'm looking for spices, and that's a true factual story. And so that's how we became, the, that's how the term Indian became. And that's not who we are. So I, I think it's important for Canadians to really understand the true history behind these residential schools because it's still prevalent today as it was then. It's, I mean, obviously things have changed. But, I mean, make no mistake, I, these policies and rules and regulations were written and erected in the Indigenous Services Building. And some of those, which we called at the time Indian agents, walk walk amongst us today. Yeah. And so, so when people make the comments about, well, that was so long ago, well, you know what, it wasn't that long ago. 
because I could still remember when these individuals would fly into the community. I still yeah. remember that. So it's not that long. I'm only 47 years old. And I tell you, it, it seems like it was just yesterday. And there were so many more, uh, so much more that had happened prior to that that I was not even aware of and just how much damage was inflicted. Well, unfortunately, it's going to be longer uh, than this conversation to get the reconciliation and the healing. Uh, but I certainly very much appreciate you joining me, and I hope you'll come on with us again to continue the conversation because there has to be a solution. I just think it's going to take real leadership, um, you know, um, to, to get this done. But I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much, Alex. Like I said, I, we're stronger together, and, and addressing the truth head on is the only way we're going to go forward. But Tearing down statues is not going to solve that and only causes more division. Thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of people would agree. Chris, thank you very much. Thank you. That's uh, Chris Sankey joining us here today, and I think he's right. You know, um, you know, people will stop listening if if you only do the what they call slacktivism. People just don't listen to that, and I think people do really want to learn about this. So bring people together, and they'll listen. Push them away. And people won't learn. We'll continue talking about this, certainly. And we'll have Chris on again, because uh, 10 minutes does not do any justice to this particular issue. Here on Point on Global News Radio. Exactly in that Winnipeg lab report that the public health and liberal government don't want us to know about. Because if there's nothing to hide, then you got to wonder why the liberals are, you know, obstructing these documents from coming out. And public health, which of course was ordered to hand thousands of documents explaining why two scientists were fired back in January, have been found in contempt of the House. And these are the documents that should reveal why two Chinese, the scientists were fired back in January, but also why, um, you know, the Chinese military were getting access to this specific Winnipeg lab. And we should note that the two scientists in question were doing work with this virology lab in Wuhan, where it's believed that COVID-19 leaked out of. And so far, they're nowhere to be seen, and we have no idea what was uh, being sent back and forth. Sam Cooper, of course, is our global news investigative reporter. He's also author of Willful Blindness, How a Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and CCP Agents Infiltrated the West. Good to have you, Sam. Thanks for having me. And I should note that your book is flying off shelves. So there is obviously a curiosity in this country when it comes to talking about China. And we know polling has shown that, you know, a, a majority of Canadians see China as a huge security threat. And so, you know, it really begs to question what is so secretive in these documents that this government doesn't want to get out? Because certainly they're putting up a, a big wall today in getting those documents released. That's that's very clear. And I can piece together quite a bit from open source research regarding, uh, uh, you know, these institutes in China that are at the highest level of military uh, research into bioweapon defense. Uh, this is according to Western intelligence and open source records. And mm -hmm. uh, so I can find that Dr. Chu uh, specifically and actually a number of her colleagues in the Winnipeg High Security Lab were working with some of China's most elite military scientists 
that we're looking at uh, pathogens like Ebola and how they uh, adapt to animals. And uh, one, one would hope they're only looking at those uh, dangerous uh, pathogens in a defensive way. But look, Dr. Chu's own documents that I obtained, these are the ones that are, you know, highly redacted. But in her uh, rationales for uh, traveling often to the Wuhan lab and to uh, mm-hmm. northern China, Jilin, uh, Beijing, and meeting with collaborators, she says it's important that I study bioterror as a as, you know, uh, something that could uh, come, come to Canada's shores. And now in hindsight, what we know, this is from my own sources, and uh, I have talked to people uh, close to the investigation into Chu. CSIS was warning for years, Canada's government, that Dr. Chu and her military-based students should not have access to the lab. Uh, Canada ignored the warnings, as they've done in a number of cases regarding threats from China. And we have the results here of a, a big, uh, you know, a gaping hole of information as to what the RCMP and CSIS found in this case, why these scientists were booted from the lab after sending Ebola samples. I can find samples that were adapted for uh, mice and guinea pigs in Canadian labs. And I, I would just add one more thing to this answer. The documents are so interesting because they paint... Uh, a pressure-filled situation where Dr. Chu is rushing her colleagues to send these samples to Wuhan. And I can read in the emails that her uh, names of people in the Wuhan lab that are blotted out are pressuring Dr. Chu to send, uh, send these samples. So it's obvious that something uh, that would concern, uh, I'm sure, uh, our, our U.S. allies, Australia, and around the world probably, as we look more into what happened in the Wuhan lab, happened in Winnipeg as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty incredible um, of, of what little information we've already been able to glean from this. Um, you know, there are major security issues, obviously, uh, dealing with this information. It's also the Wuhan lab where it's now suspected that this leak of COVID may have come out of and why the United States is now investigating what was once a conspiracy theory as a possible truth now. And so then there become, you know, questions of, you know, is this going to link back to Canada some way that we somehow made uh, other of our, our allies vulnerable by allowing, you know, Chinese military scientists and, and these particular scientists of sending uh, viruses? Uh, are we going to somehow be implicated in this? Well, I think right now, judging from the records that we can access and my external research, we can already say that, look, there was definitely a connection between the Winnipeg lab and the Wuhan lab where scientists very connected to China, but based in Canada, were helping that Wuhan lab build its capacity to research into uh, coronaviruses and uh, Ebola and uh, some of these uh, viruses that have resulted in pandemics and some of these viruses that we know governments fear terrorists could could use them as weapons. What we let me be clear, we have no evidence that the the coronavirus that emerged in Wuhan in 2019 is in any way linked to Dr. Chu and the Winnipeg lab. But we do have evidence that Canadian scientists were helping Chinese military scientists in very dangerous research areas. So from my I've talked to people with with access to uh, sort of these networks uh, of government and intelligence in Washington. And it goes without saying Washington is looking at the Canadian lab and wondering, you know, could yes, could Canadian scientists be part of that picture as uh, of an accident that might have happened in Wuhan? 
Is this an issue in your mind of government dropping the ball and just being clueless because this was under the watch of public health and they have in, um, you know, in the last couple of years, we've kind of realized that they were a bunch of bureaucrats that really didn't know what was going on. Or is this an issue of a government that was uh, happy to look the other way? I think it's part of a pattern, and I can say this with great confidence, that, uh, you know, Canadian security uh, intelligence sources, RCMP sources, American sources are looking at Canada and shaking their heads uh, Mm. at this pattern of Canada's, uh, at the highest levels up to the Prime Minister's office, clearly has not paid attention to CSIS warnings on a number of issues from a united front political interference and influence to... uh, uh, to these labs, to the Consino vaccine collaboration, to really what we know now is a, a broad effort from the Chinese state to uh, put researchers within Canadian uh, universities to steal yeah. Canadian uh, IP. And look, uh, no one can deny that Canada has not been responding uh, in a strong way as we see in Australia, the United States. So the question, I do think it's it, to me, it almost it can't be naivety anymore because we've seen enough warnings. We've read the Special Intelligence Committee reports that are filed up to the, the Prime Minister's office laying out these threats from China and Russia inside Canada for years now. And these sort of breaches or ignoring Canada's intelligence agencies continue. Yeah, and a lot of this is laid out in your book as to how China has infiltrated this country, made us very vulnerable, reached the upper echelons of government, um, and certainly worked its way not just into labs uh, and our research, but as you point out, our universities. And so um, do you believe that we will see these documents, and do you believe that there's a major national security uh, issue being covered up? I... there's been a discussion on whether people in uh, security and intelligence fear that the documents re- would be released to Parliament. I don't think that's mm. their fear. I think their clear worry and concern is that time and again, they are ignored on these important issues. There was, you know, we can point to the Ontario government ignoring a warning about a high level minister of a uh, member of Parliament allegedly working with China. And this mm. goes, you know, it, it's repeated. So, I don't think there's a, I do think that the, the most likely scenario here is that the government will look bad for ignoring very clear warnings. And in the worst case, these scientists in Canada could be shown to be involved in the most dangerous research around bioweapons in China. That is a clear possibility here. Stay tuned. Sam, appreciate your insight always. Thank you. That is Sam Cooper and, of course, author Willful Blindness, How a Network of Narcos, Tycoons and CCP Agents Infiltrated the West. This should be required reading for every single Canadian, and clearly a lot of Canadians want to read it because it is literally uh, flying off the shelves. So uh, I I advise uh, you all to pick up a copy. You're on point on Global News Radio. All right. Thanks so much. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. We'll do it again here on point on Global News Radio.